You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Our passage this week is Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. And I want to preach to you a message that I've entitled, Three Requests of the Unrighteous Dead. Three Requests of the Unrighteous Dead. How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? Recent research from the Barna Group offered some disappointing news regarding millennials. Now, I want to go ahead and say this. If you're a millennial, if you're 20 or 30-something years old, I do not disparage you because I find myself in the same category. I'm still there. But there is a unique trend among my generation about evangelism or preaching or proclaiming the faith. Take note that the millennials I'm about to talk to are not just millennials who claim a Christian affiliation, as in, um, I'm an American and so I must be a Christian. It's much more deeper than that. These are church-going millennials who say that Christianity is an important part of their life. Nearly all of them, 96%, said witnessing for Jesus or evangelism is part of being a Christian. And in fact, they were more likely than any other generation in this study to say that they were gifted at sharing their faith. 73% believed that they were good at evangelism. But here's the disappointing news. 47%, that's nearly half in this survey, agreed with the following statement. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that one day they will share the same faith. So nearly half says it would be wrong to in fact try to persuade someone to share the same faith that they have. Now now notice that. I know that sounds kind of uh, like a dichotomy or illogical. They definitely see evangelism as a part of the rhythm and discipline of the Christian life. But there does come a time and a place where it would be wrong to kind of enforce or infringe upon a person in hopes of winning them to the faith. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that sentiment, but there has been one prominent suggestion by scholars, theologians, interpreters of the data that some millennials feel this way because it is a reaction to an older generation of evangelicals that may have overemphasized the doctrines of heaven and hell. 
and in response to confrontational evangelism. So the point is this, kind of the pendulum is swinging one way, and this happens in the church and evangelicalism, that there was a generation that preached nothing but heaven and hell, and that's all the gospel is about. And that's not true. The gospel is more than just about heaven or hell. And in some, in fact, in reaction to that, have swung the other way to say, you know what, let's not even make heaven or hell a part of the equation. But here's what I need you to catch. Neither side is biblical. It doesn't do justice to what the Bible has to say about the totality of the gospel. It seems counterintuitive, but I want to challenge you with this this morning. I want to challenge your way of thinking. But to dismiss the doctrine of hell, for whatever reason you have, it may seem like a good reason or a better reason than your neighbor, is actually not loving but hateful. Dismissing the doctrine of hell is not loving, but hateful. And I believe this story today that we read from the lips of Jesus demonstrates that. In the preceding passage, Luke 16, verses 1 through 15, King Jesus, the Son of God, is addressing the proper use and abuse of money. He's talking about money earlier in the chapter. And Jesus makes this famous statement that no one can devote themselves wholeheartedly to the service of both God and money, right? Greed is worshiping the false god of money. Greed is idolatry. At this, a group of religious leaders known as the Pharisees, they scoffed and sneered at Jesus when he made the statement, no one can wholeheartedly serve God in money. Now you say, why would religious leaders kind of mock Jesus because of that statement? The Pharisees, these spiritual leaders, viewed money very differently. They considered wealth to be a proof of a person's righteousness. And we hear this today in a lot of false teaching, health and wealth, prosperity gospel, that if you're really living right with God, you'll be a wealthy person. This is false teaching. So another unique thing about the Pharisees that Jesus didn't have a problem pointing out and he did it over and over again in their ministry, is while they did have money, you would think that would make them more generous, don't you? In fact, if we learn and read anything about the Pharisees, they were stingy, greedy and stingy. The only time in in the Bible where we have a reference to their generosity is only when people saw them do it. I'm about to hand this money to this poor person. All right? In light of that, Jesus tells them a story about hell. A story about hell. Now, I want to preface this and give you a full disclosure. In this passage, Jesus speaks of Hades, not his word for hell, which is generally the Greek term Gehenna. The detail is significant that he is talking about Hades and not Gehenna. Hades is not hell. Let me explain this to you. In Revelation, just write this reference down, Revelation 20, verse 14. Notice what the Apostle John, the best friend of Jesus, writes under inspiration and revelation of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. He says, Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
Most Bible scholars have no problem saying that the lake of fire is hell. That is Gehenna. So notice this. If Hades is being cast into the lake of fire or hell, it's obvious that Hades itself is not what? Hell. But this should actually cause us to tremble even more. Hades is where the unrighteous dead await Jesus' judgment. And you're going to read when he tells you some of the details about this story. While he's not explaining everything there is to know about hell, I think there's a simple inference we can make. This is a place, Hades, is not some place we want to go. And if this is just the, basically the prison or the place where people await to be judged, then hell must be more horrifying than we can ever imagine. Do you catch that? So you basically have this place that is just a waiting place before the righteous judgment of Jesus when he actually sends people to hell. And this place is not a fun place. This place is not a comforting place. This place is an agonizing place. It's a tormented place. And then I want you to notice as you see this place, what the unrighteous dead request or what they ask would happen because they're in this place. Look at what it says in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Jesus is telling a story in response to the Pharisees scoffing at him about the, the subject of money. He says this, There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his, the rich man's, gate. The poor man longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. Verse 22, One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Verse 22. And being in torment in Hades, just waiting the judgment of God, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off. Now that's Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, which this is a rich Jew that's, that's died. And notice who's beside his side. With Lazarus, that poor man, at his side. Verse 24. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Look at Abraham's response. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things. Did you see that? Your life you received your good things. And then notice this. Just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he has comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you. If you underline your Bible, underline the word you. I'll get to that in a minute. Us and you. So that those who want to pass over from here to you... Cannot, 
and neither can those from there cross over to us. And let's pause right there. A couple of things. I just want you to play a little bit of a game with me and, and answer some of the contrasting, some of the differences that we find in this passage. This passage is about a rich man and a what? A poor man. All right? A rich man and a poor man. Now, according to the Pharisees, who would be highly favored by God in this passage? The rich man. In fact, the fact that the poor man is sick should show to the rest of the people that this man is disfavored by God. He has not experienced the love, mercy, and goodness of God, so the Pharisees would have fought. The rich man here is covered in what? Purple. That's the color of royalty. This man, with gentleness and respect, he was filthy rich, and he did not mind flaunting it off. And he wasn't a king. This is just a rich Jew, okay? And then notice the other covering. The, the poor man's covered in what? Sores. So he's not covered up completely. In fact, you could see on his body that he had sores. Now what's the name of the rich man? No, look again. What's the name of the rich man? He's not named. Now, this is important because the Pharisees would have thought this. Oh, a rich man definitely gets the recognition of others and definitely the recognition of who? God. And yet here we're talking about eternal destinies and realities and Jesus goes, it's just some rich guy. The only person who is noticed in this passage is who? A poor man named Lazarus. God knows his name. Depart from me, I never knew you, right? But, oh, I know Lazarus. So this should go ahead and tell you something, please, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm not saying it's wrong to be rich or even wrong to be poor, but there's more to our relationship to God than the externals. It genuinely is a matter of our heart. Now, when our hearts change, will it affect the way we live our lives? Absolutely. But we got to get this heart right first. Doesn't matter how you have justified yourself before your, your own ego or how you've justified yourself before other, others. The question is, how, how are you justified before God? What does he see? Let's keep looking. How did Lazarus care for the poor man? Nothing. Completely neglected him. And yet, there, are, there is a group of beings that do care for the poor man in this, in this story. Who? Dogs. The dogs treated this poor man better than this rich man did. Now, notice this. Remember, it says that when Lazarus died, he was carried by angels to Abraham's side. Now, if you don't know anything about the, the culture and history that's happening at the time when Jesus is telling this story... When you didn't have a proper burial, there was a place that they would go and throw the bodies generally. And I've talked about this before when we preached on the book of Jeremiah. There was a valley called Gehenom or Ben-Hinnom. And it was the valley of Gehenna. This is important. They, took, they probably took this poor man, Lazarus's body, went to the garbage dump where there were cremate bodies, and they would throw him on the fire. Do you see this ultimate cosmic reversal? 
Do you see this? So this poor man is thrown into Gehenna physically, but where does his spirit go? To Abraham's side. Interesting, it says the rich man was buried. If you know anything about the culture and history of the Jews in that time, a burial was a big to-do, right? They rolled out the red carpet. So he gets, and he's probably placed in this beautiful tomb, right? Stones rolled over it. It's probably whitewashed, looks great. They seal him in, and where does he end up? Tormented in Hades. You see this ultimate reversal. He's tormented in Hades, and then the hero of all the Jewish people. Think about this. Abraham saw there's debate over whether it's a genuine capacity. I just think this. Lazarus went to paradise, and think about this. There's this banquet table laid out for everybody in heaven. And notice who Lazarus gets to sit beside. The hero of the Jewish people, Abraham. Imagine, just think about going to heaven and imagine the per- that one person you want to see and you get to sit right beside them. Could you imagine the rich man's look on his face when he looks up and goes, the poor man is sitting beside our hero, Abraham. Notice this in this story. The rich man just wants a drop of water on his tongue. Just give me one drop of water on my tongue and yet... At his gate every day lay a man that just wanted what? Table scraps. Crumbs. And then I have to point this out. There's a great chasm. This is irreversible. Did you notice that? Abraham goes, even in like Abraham's plight, he goes, even if I was able, I couldn't because this chasm is fixed. It's a divine passive. It means God placed this chasm there. You can't come here, and we can't come to you. And remember, where was Lazarus placed in his life? Right outside the mansion gate of the rich man. He passed by Lazarus, how often? Every single day, Lazarus had the opportunity to help this man. And now the opportunity for Lazarus will never, for the rich man, will never come. A couple of things I find interesting in this, beyond the contrast. Everybody got the contrast. Two things. If you look back there in verse 26, he says, Besides all this, a great chasm has been, has been fixed between us and, and this is the second person plural in the Greek. In the south we say this, and y'all. And y'all. Now remember, who is Jesus telling this story to? The Pharisees. So Jesus goes ahead and places them in the story as well. Did you see that? Hey, there's a great chasm fixed between us and not just you, rich man, but y'all. And there's one thing, only one thing in this story that both men have in common. And what is that? We all die. We all die. The rich man cannot take any of his things with him. At the end of the day, it was about how was each individual justified in their heart. I want you to notice the first request of the rich man. He cries out 
to Abraham and says what? Have mercy on me. The very first thing you can write in your notes is this. Mercy without repentance. Write that down. Mercy without repentance. Here's what I find so sad about this scenario. You would think, you would think that if I was in that position or if you were in that position and you saw Abraham, the hero of the Jewish faith, and Lazarus, you would say, have mercy on me. Abraham, Lazarus, I am sorry for neglecting you. Right? I messed up. It's interesting. There is not a note of remorse in this whole story. There is not a heart that has been affected by repentance in this whole story. In fact, he has the gall to request for mercy and have Lazarus Lazarus be the one to send it to him. Ladies and gentlemen, I need you to see this and get this deep in your soul. If you want to repent and experience heaven and the goodness of God, that is something for you to do in this life. Today. Those cries of mercy are ineffectual in the hereafter. They do not work. It only happens now. I can't plead with you and make it any clearer. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for you to recognize that you are a sinner and apart from turning from your sins and and stop sneering and scoffing at Jesus and trusting Him, believing Him and obeying Him, that's the only hope we have of heaven. And that's why it is not hateful to talk about hell because hell is a reality. If it's the truth, you should want a person who believes that to tell you escape from the wrath and the judgment to come. I get no pleasure out of the doctrine of hell. No one should. So we warn and we persuade everyone. We pray that you will come to Jesus and receive forgiveness and give your life to Him because there is no mercy without repentance and there is no repentance in hell. And all of us, ladies and gentlemen, you and me, every single one of us, we all need mercy. We are all sinners Doomed for a devil's hell. That's who it was made for. But when we refuse to change our lives in light of the holiness of God, there is no place left for us in the universe. Look at the second request. Look at verse 27 through 31. He says, Father, he said. Notice this. Abraham, like... We have a relationship, right? I'm, I'm a great descendant of yours. See what he's playing on? Shouldn't my ancestry mean something? And let me tell you, it happens here in the South. I bring up Christianity and somebody says, well, you know, my great-great-grandpa was a preacher. Who cares? Your grandpa's faith can't get you into heaven. So he goes, Father, he said, I beg you. To send him. Again, notice how he's treating Lazarus. That's just another servant boy. No repentance. Send Lazarus to my father's house back home because I have five brothers to warn them so that they also won't come to this place of torment. Look at verse 29. But Abraham said, 
they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. Now, just in case you said, what do you mean Moses and the prophets? Moses and the prophets are dead. They're saying Moses' writings, the first five books of the Bible, and then the prophets which compose the rest of the Old Testament, he says they're hearing God's word every single Sabbath. Now catch that. He's saying your families in church every time the doors are open hearing from the word of God. They should listen to them. Verse 30, he replies, No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Oh, man, if you sent Lazarus back from the dead and they saw that sight, you all know me, I'm a Christmas fan, I thought about a Christmas carol. Surely this would turn the Scrooge right. And look at verses 31. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. A resurrection won't, cha- won't change their mind. The second request is this. He's requesting, number two, repentance for the living. Repentance for the living. I just told you that death is the end of the opportunity for salvation. I want you to think about this. There, there is one or two good things that happen in hell. Isn't it sad that there are people in Hades right now who are begging and praying that their family would be warned? And yet here we are in the land of the living and we give very little thought to it, don't we? See, if we were where they were, what would, what, would Liza, what would the rich man sit down and tell you? Will you please go to my family? Will you please warn them? Will you please tell them? He would look at all of his brothers. He would look at every one of them and say, repent, 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 repent. Why? I don't want you to end up here. And that's the part when we talk about... Why is evangelism wrong or right? The point is this. If if someone's eternal destiny is on the line and the only place for repentance is in this life, that should motivate you and I to go, this is the day in which we tell somebody. Repent today. And in case you're wondering, like, what is this repentance? Repentance literally is, is a change of mind. And it starts with what you understand sin to be. You yourself are a sinner. You've trespassed God's law. You've disobeyed Him. You deserve God's judgment, punishment, and wrath. And I'm not pointing fingers at you. All of us have sinned. And the good news of the gospel, here's how repentance even plays a key, is if we'll turn from our sins and look to Jesus and in in, in faith embrace Him as our Savior and God, Jesus bled and died on the cross to, I mean, Just get rid, expunge, eliminate sin once and for all. It's never going to come between us and God ever again. And that's what we're calling you to. We're calling you to repent, turn from your sins, and trust Jesus as your Savior. And I'm telling you now, all of Hades cries out with a great amen. Amen. There's one other one here. Number three, for those sent to warn. 
for those sent to warn. Here's the sad part about this scenario. Lazarus tells Abraham, will you send them to warn? Ladies and gentlemen, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has all authority in heaven and earth has sent all of us already. We don't need the command to go. Do you understand that? That command's been given. We just need to obey the command and actually warn people. Now, hey, it's up to them to believe and obey. But don't let any person go unwarned and unprayed for. To warn someone just simply means to witness to them to repent so that they may not experience the same fate. A witness to repentance. A witness to repentance. I want you to think about what this rich man says, essentially. If only someone had told me about this place, I would have lived differently. And then think about Abraham's response. No, you wouldn't. Why? He says, because they have Moses and the prophets. Let me explain what he means by that. The Old Testament, this book, teaches us that we will be judged by God. There is not a single person that will not face Jesus' judgment and give account of their life. This Bible is explicit. It's, it's not like hidden, right? I mean, start from Genesis and work all the way to the back. It is there. Everyone will give an account to their creator. Unbelief is not an intellectual problem. It's not an evidential problem. It's not if I could just provide more evidence that would change hearts. What we have to also understand, I'm not saying people don't have intellectual questions. I don't have a problem with that. What we have to also understand is that unbelief is also a spiritual problem. Only the word of God like a hammer can break hard hearts. Let's just confess it for what we is. There's sometimes so much evidence can't move hearts that love sin more than its consequences. The rich man loved his life. He could not spare table scraps for a poor man. That was a heart issue. Do you catch that? Didn't matter what all he could, he heard Moses and the prophets every time he went to church. Do you catch it? If he's guilty of one thing, he's not guilty of being rich. Please understand this. Abraham was filthy rich and he's in heaven, right? What he's guilty of is neglecting the word of God and disobeying it, period. He heard what the, what the Bible said about judgment. He heard about what the Bible said about generosity. And did he ever repent or change his life? No. And we go, how could he do something so foolish? Ladies and gentlemen, this story plays itself out every single Sunday. A person gets up, preaches and teaches from the word of God, and what do we do? Maybe next week. And yet we're not guaranteed the moment of our death. I want you to think about something. Jesus is speaking ultimately to who? Who's his audience? Pharisees. Now, we don't see this in the Gospel of Luke, but if you were to turn to John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, I just don't think things happen by coincidence in the life of Jesus. All right? It's interesting that we do have a man that Jesus raises from the dead, and guess what his name happens to be? Lazarus. (laughs) 
What a coincidence. Now here's what's interesting. In John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, Jesus has just raised a man from the dead, Lazarus. And you would go, surely, hey, that would inspire and compel the Pharisees to faith in Jesus, right? That's going to be it. That's got to be the deal breaker. If you go to read John 12, 9 through 11, after that, the religious leaders plan to kill Lazarus. You know why? They didn't like that kind of evidence. Because it proved everything Jesus was saying was right. So let's just get rid of Lazarus. At some point, ladies and gentlemen, this is why I'm trying to say, there's this tipping scale, I think, in our hearts. We're going to keep asking and asking for more and more evidence when really what we have to come to grips with is we have to acknowledge that the Bible says we're sinners under the wrath of God and only Jesus can save us. Until we come to that conclusion, there's no amount of evidence that will ever change that. Can we humble ourselves and actually say, I need God's mercy with repentance? Leon Morris in his commentary writes this. He says, God pays men the compliment of allowing them to live without him if they choose. But if they live without him in this life, they must also live without him in the next. You have the choice. You can live with him now and forever or not live with him now and not forever. He has made the offer. He has already demonstrated his love on the cross, being raised from the dead. He sits at the right hand of God the Father, ready to hear your thoughts and whispers of confession and repentance and giving your life to him. The choice is yours. Write this down. So what? Number one, that means this. Repent of your sins and trust Jesus as your Savior today. Repent of your sins and trust Jesus as your Savior today. That's the only hope. Do not walk out of here. And here's, I can walk away. There is no blood on my, on my hands today. I have warned you of the wrath to come and the gospel that Jesus can absorb it all. It's your choice now. But then for those who've already made that choice, here's what you must do today. Number two, you are equipped to warn others. I want you to catch what this, what this parable also taught us. Look at this, church. If you know the Savior and you have the Scriptures, you have everything you need to warn everybody. Sometimes we psych ourselves out going, I need, and I'm not, I'm not opposed to more theology and apologetics giving a rational defense of our faith. But let me tell you this, if we just honestly would go warn people out of love for them and be, be good students of the Bible, that generally is quite enough. We psych ourselves out that we have to give them more evidence than God gave them. If you've got the Savior and you've got the Scriptures, you are equipped to warn people. So while there's no excuse for people today to remain in unrepentance, there's no excuse for any disciple to remain unwarning people. You've got everything that you need. Penn Gillette, he's the half of the magician duo Penn and Teller. He was once asked, how much do you have, or he once asked, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that. 
I've always said, and, and, and Penn's an atheist, he says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't evangelize. I don't respect them at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people can be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it might uh, be socially awkward, again, how much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelize? From the words of an atheist. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.